So I think having those mapped out before you hop on the phone with any recruiter, even if you think it's a casual chat, you are being evaluated in some way, shape or form. So I would say come prepared with your career milestones. It doesn't have to be a five minute answer to tell me about yourself, but at least some points that you know you want to hit on. So if nothing else, this recruiter walks away knowing these key points about me, my years of experience and what I want to do next. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This is where we lift the curtain on the hiring process by talking to recruiters and hiring managers to help you better understand how hiring decisions get made. Today, I'm talking to Marjorie Calamaris. Marjorie is currently a job search coach, but she does that with a wealth of knowledge, having worked at companies like LinkedIn and Greenhouse that make technology that focuses on job seekers. So she brings a really cool perspective and this behind the scenes view on how the tech works. She was actually a recruiter at Greenhouse and a recruiter at LinkedIn. So she worked at these companies that built technology to help job seekers and then recruited on their behalf. So she brings an incredible perspective and we talk a lot about how these various technologies affect the job search how they use them internally. We go quite deep on the ATS, given that she worked at Greenhouse and recruited at Greenhouse. And then we also talk about LinkedIn Recruiter and how all these tools go together. It was a really fun conversation. I'm super thankful that she volunteered to be on the show. And I think you're gonna love all the knowledge that she shares in this episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This week we are with Marjorie Calamaris, who spent quite a few years at LinkedIn and has 10 years plus of recruiting experience and is now a career coach and helps people navigate the process that she knows so well. But Marjorie, how about you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm Marjorie Calamaris. I've been a recruiter, like you said, over 10 years um, in Silicon Valley in the US and Europe, lived in a few countries at LinkedIn, HubSpot. I was just at Greenhouse most recently. And I love all things hiring, as you can tell, it's been my entire career. And now I am a job search coach and career coach. So I live, eat and breathe helping people get jobs. All right. So this is super cool because you've recruited for companies that make software to help recruit. Yes. So you have this like meta inside view that I think is really interesting. Let's dive in. You know, I think a theme we want to focus on is kind of how to leverage, not necessarily how to leverage the tools, how recruiters use tools to find candidates, which will then translate into the best ways to be found. But we'd love to hear in particular, like your process at, and you worked at two job search-ish companies. So we'd love to hear how, what your process was at LinkedIn, using LinkedIn to find candidates. And then we'd love to hear a little bit of how you did it at Greenhouse. Yeah, well, I'll go for the classic routes first and then maybe some of the more creative routes that I've I've, I've used in the past as a recruiter. I've seen other recruiters do. But at LinkedIn um, and most companies, you know, we use LinkedIn Recruiter. It's an enterprise version of LinkedIn. That is the most common way that recruiters find candidates. So if you've ever gotten a LinkedIn message before, and wondered, you know, how do they find me? We're not even connected. It's because they have this tool called LinkedIn Recruiter where we can search essentially every single person who is on LinkedIn. We have a variety of filters. We use keywords. And there are a lot of different ways to slice and dice that to find the exact person that you want. So I would say LinkedIn Recruiter is most classic, first and foremost. 
Beyond that, of course, there are other job boards that recruiters use. It really, I think, would depend more on the niche of, and the type of role that you're hiring for. So whether that's Indeed, whether that's something else completely, whether it's regional, specific to the country that you're looking for folks in. And then at Greenhouse, um, I was on the consult on the consulting side there. But in terms of what I think is really interesting about coming from that view is using potentially your ATS to look for candidates. So I know a lot of recruiters, they have an existing applicant tracking system like Greenhouse. They'll look in to past candidates, right? Who has applied in the past and maybe not gotten through the interview rounds or who has been a finalist. And for some reason, they just didn't get the role. Someone else won them out, but they're still a really great candidate. So and these are folks that we often call silver medalists, right? They didn't get the gold medal, but they got the silver. They were really great. So I think those are a couple of the two most classic ways that recruiters find candidates. But I mean, there are so many other creative, interesting, different ways that that I could go into too, but I'll, I'll stop there for now. When I talk about sourcing candidates, I do a lot of our hiring for Teal now, and we've mainly relied on inbound. That means we, we posted a job online and people would apply. The problem with that and the, a lot of the difficulty for us in hiring is like people don't know who we are. We're still a little company, you know, we're quite active on LinkedIn, but still like in the grand scheme of things of all the potential talent that's out there, they don't know we exist. They're actively job searching and they don't know our jobs are available to them. Um, so then comes outbound. This is us proactively seeking candidates. And today we use LinkedIn Recruiter, outrageously expensive, but props to them because it's incredibly valuable. So I do feel like the cost value ratio is there. No one else has what LinkedIn has. In particular, being able to search folks that are open to work is highly valuable because I know there's just a higher likelihood they'll respond to me. Now, there are people who forgot to turn off open to work and that's problematic and embarrassing, but would love to hear a little bit of a deeper dive into the outbound process. I mean, in particular, LinkedIn, like, we can get nitty gritty granular, like what are the facets you're using? What sections of the filters like do you go to first? How do you compose your Boolean? We can get real deep. If we're getting deep, let's just go for it. So uh, typically as any recruiter, I would start off um, meeting with the hiring manager, right? So say I'm hiring for you, Dave. I'd say, you know, what are the qualifications you need? What do you need this candidate to deliver in, you know, three months, six months, a year's time? What would you like them to bring to the table? Any skills, qualifications that are missing from your team? So we'd really do um, what's called a hiring manager intake meeting. And we'd go through everything under the sun that we could possibly talk about, about this future hire of yours and including the interview process. Like, I really want to know everything about the team and about the person, the situation that this new hire will be coming into. Because I need to understand, you know, what stage in their career does this person need to be? What is going to potentially motivate them about this role? How will they be measured? And all this comes before any sort of searching is done. And once we feel like we're on the same page, you are confident that I have a good idea what I'm looking for and vice versa. I, I feel like I really know what, what you're looking for. I've had all my questions answered. Then I would do a market map, right? Going into using LinkedIn, we, there is a tool called LinkedIn Talent Insights that I've used in the past that is really great. But you can do this even if you just have LinkedIn Recruiter, with, I think, without it. And essentially, what you want to do is look at all of the folks in your talent pool, right? What's, what's your potential talent pool in the market that you're looking to hire in? So say, I don't know, you're looking for a marketing manager in New York only, right? We'd look at the folks in New York, um, the folks maybe in the tri-state area surrounding, 
who brings those qualifications, who has the years of experience that you're looking for, and essentially who fits that bill that you're looking to hire. Oh, that's interesting. So first is just like understanding what is the available. I always like to make the correlations like more like business planning and startup and sales, but it's like, what is the available pool, right? That is not an infinite number. It is a finite number. Then, you know, it gets starts like fuzzy at the edges where you can start to like compromise on qualifications. But like in terms of like the exact qualifications, that's a finite number given the data you have and the people who are making that data public. So you can actually like sort of put a lasso around them. But it's like, okay, this is the denominator of people we could possibly hire. Exactly. It's your TAM, your total addressable market, right? So if we have these qualifications, this is our TAM that we're going for. And you and I together in that partnership, we can play around with the TAM. And I can show you, hey, if we remove this qualification, this is how much bigger our TAM gets. And if we add on, if you really are saying, I want this certification or I want, I don't know, this coding language, whatever it is, it's going to restrict your TAM by X amount. And so you know what you're getting into before your recruiter even goes off to start the search. Because as a recruiter, I want you to have a good understanding of what you're getting yourself into, how long it could take to potentially hire someone based on supply and demand in that market. So that's why we always start with the TAM before we even reach out to a single candidate. And so what are some of the parameters that typically for like a role you would have hired? I mean, maybe walk me through a typical scenario of like, I like to give people concrete examples as well. So it's like less abstract. So let's go with this marketing manager. What would be some of the attributes that would help construct the TAM for possible candidates? Oh, yeah. Great question. So attributes that might help construct the TAM. Let's say um, we're getting more granular here. It's a product marketing manager. And that's who we're going for. We want to understand, um, you know, have they worked on, I don't know, B2B products in the past, right? SaaS products in the past. It's something that I would work with you on as the hiring manager to understand what is going to be important. Do they need to have five plus years as a product marketing manager? Is that really necessary? Are we looking for a senior PMM or are you okay with an associate PMM coming in? So these are all questions I would want to clarify and also um, the industry that they've worked in in the past. I'm not big on the specific companies they've worked on because I think you can get fabulous experience at a number of different places, companies that are smaller, larger, more matrixed orgs. But what type of industry experience will be helpful to you? And when you say industry, industry is this like very funny word. Yes. Do you mean more like, because I always talk about Uber. Uber is like a good example. Like they're in the logistics industry and like the shipping industry, or are they like in tech? Because again, every company is becoming a tech company. So when you say industry, are you more referring to like domain? Like they understand the world of logistics or they've been, the answer could be both as well, but or they understand like tech. So I guess I mean sub-industry because the industry is way too broad, right? Anyone and everyone can be tech adjacent these days. So I would say, you know, they come from rideshare, right? That's the domain that they're in, but they might have transferable skills, right? Having been a PMM over there, but that is B2C. So I would ask, you know, is that something that is that you find is easily transferable, right? Because as the hiring manager, you are um, the subject matter expert, right? On your function within the company. I would, I think, challenge you on that. Like what what skills would transfer over? You know, is this the most transferable person we could get or type of candidate we could look at? This is a really good one because, you know, as a person who often espouses, like go to the JD, the answers are in the JD. This is one that I actually think you need to infer and is implied 
in the JD. If I'm applying to a job at Uber, they're not going to say, hey, if you have ride sharing experience, make sure you include that in your resume. Like they, they probably won't go as far as to say previous experience in ride sharing. This is on you to infer. And at least what I've seen when I hire, I it's super personal, but I value domain as high, maybe sometimes even a little bit higher than like exact functional ability, because I feel like that requires time. And it's like, you, you can't like take a course to learn about B2C. Like you have to have lived it. So like for me, if a person has B2C experience, but they're like of equal chops as someone else that does, but you know, is like a good product marketer, but they were in B2B and enterprise their whole career. I'm going to pick the person with B2C experience. Oh, that's interesting. Because I would say to that, that as consumers in the market, like we all have experience with a lot of the common apps that we use. So I find that switch to be a little easier, right? Going from B2B to B2C, because you can answer in interviews, you know, what would you change about this product? What do you find as the main challenges, the main flaws? And I think going the other way, it's more restricted access. But I, I see what you mean. With that particular example, I agree. I just think more in the sense that I value the sub, like the sub industry, like the, the person. So when I was at WeWork, right, like someone who had like exposure to the real estate industry, whether they didn't have like the exact skills, we hired designers for like architecture all the time. If they hadn't done, like if they had done like office space versus like residential, the person that had done office space, there's just like different rules and different things you need to account for. Like they're both really good architects, they're both really good designers, but the person that had done office work, I just knew they were gonna be able to ramp faster. That was more valuable to me, but I don't remember like ever in our JD saying like, you must have experience with office. It's kind of like implied because we're an office company. Will favor that if you're an office, if you have office expertise. So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and some hiring managers do do favor that. So when you're defining your TAM though, that may not have been in the JD, but it was definitely something you were accounting for. It may or may not have been in the JD explicitly, but it's definitely part of the company. So that was something that was often in your like definition of the TAM? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like you said, whether it's defined or not, right? If we are an office-based company and we look at folks coming from similar places, like you said, they're going to bring a ton of their own um, domain expertise and knowledge and it might be smoother, right? And some hiring managers rather train on, you know, the role itself rather than the domain. So I think it's complete personal preference and it, it does vary manager to manager. Like if there's a manager I've worked with repeatedly, and I know that they're more open on industry, like say they're a sales manager and they just want someone who knows the basics of solution selling, but they're more open on domain. I think it does differ a bit. Did you like have a list of companies that were in similar industries? I know you said you don't like look for companies in particular, which I agree with because there's so many cool companies that, you know, we wouldn't even know. But sometimes the industry is tricky. So like what were some of the tactics you would use to help define these like sub-industry associations to people? If you do search by company, I think it's a great way to restrict your TAM very early on. Right? So I think that's something a lot of recruiters get frustrated with. They looked up, you know, the top three most popular companies and then got through everyone on that list and no one's responding to them and they're not sure why. So you could either, if you are doing a company approach, some recruiters look at similar companies too. So again, looking at folks in the space. But I think if you're going non-company at all, which is what I prefer, I really focus on skills first. And there's been this, this great move in the industry away from schools and towards skills. We used to say that at LinkedIn a lot, right? We go for skills, not schools, because I think there's, I mean, that we know there's a ton of bias in 
you know, campus recruiting and hiring and your company might happen to go to certain schools, but miss others where you could find your perfect hires for what you need. So anything skills based is going to be where we start. And we put in keywords. So we'll input keywords that could be anywhere on the person's profile. And I think this is also something that candidates might not understand as well. They sometimes think, oh, based on the company that I've worked for, or it has to be in a certain location on the profile, no, or in the skills section, that's not the case at all. It could be a keyword of a skill that's in your about me section. It could be in your headline. It could be down by your experience. It could be in any of these places and it will still be picked up by LinkedIn recruiter search. So I want to try to get some insider if you have it. Do you have any sense of if any of those locations have more weight like, so if the keyword shows up in the headline versus I've been trying to do some tests, I'm just like, you know, on my own profile and like put it in a different place and see if it shows up. I, I haven't spent enough time to come up with anything conclusive, but since we've got someone here, you know, yeah, did the keyword carry more weight with the algorithm if it was in the headline versus the about versus the skills versus the work experience or any other section? That's a great question. And I will caveat by saying I was never on the product side, so I don't have definitive product answers, but I will say the first thing that any recruiters see when they pull up a LinkedIn search, you know, they do their keywords, they input their filters. What they're going to see right away is what every person sees on their LinkedIn homepage on the left-hand side. So if you go to the left-hand side of your LinkedIn, you'll see a little box with your face, essentially your profile picture, your headline, and your little background and any affiliation. So say you are following the company or if you are a LinkedIn premium member, you'll have a little badge. So what we see is essentially a snippet of, let's say, 25 different people on a page. And you only see what you really only see is face, name, headline is what is immediate. So if you want a keyword to stand out immediately, put it in that headline, right? If it's a skill that you want to be known for, that you want someone to be messaging you for, put B2B product marketing manager right in that headline. I like creative headlines as much as the next person, right, to keep it fresh, but it is really useful just because you want that clickability, you want that recruiter to say, yep, Dave is exactly who we're looking for and go to you first. I will say if you are um, connected to that person, to the recruiter, you'll show up higher in the relevancy sometimes, but it's that. So that's very useful. But I mean, a lot of people don't know the recruiters, right? They're not going to be connected to them initially. So I I find that that's useful in certain niche cases, but not always. Was the job title one of the things that you would plug in. So essentially like looking for people that have had that title before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love a hire that's done something maybe tangential and it's not an obvious hire. So I'm, I'm all for that. But where you start typically, especially if you're looking at uh, measuring out your TAM is for similar, I would say similar titles. So the same exact title and maybe a previous title. So if there is a leveling situation where you have an associate product marketing manager product marketing manager and the senior and you're going for that middle level, try inputting the associate as well to see if you can find folks that are ready to make that leap and want to make a jump to the next level up. From a sourcing perspective, how did you account for how different companies level? Right. So like we're a little startup. I'm happy to make someone senior director kind of not that big a deal because there's not as many people. Absolutely. Yeah. We should have rigor around it. I understand like the how bad what I just said is, <laughs> you know, um, but little companies can just sort of get away with that stuff. Bigger companies, that's much harder. And so the people you're trying to source are constrained by like the company's leveling system. And so someone who like at Teal objectively, assuming we're using rigor, may have been a senior or even a director at Facebook would be, would not, 
right? So we'll use product manager, right? The director of product managing, product management at Teal is a product manager at Facebook, given that they've got so many more levels and so much more experience. So would, would you account for that as using just like the root title when you were sourcing or would you put in the sort of prepends and upends? Yeah, that's that's a great point, right? Because I again, I don't want to be limit. Like just like I said, companies were limiting. Titles can also be very limiting. And so sometimes what I like to do if I find that you know this is looking like kind of a narrow tam, and I feel like I can open it up a bit more, is by looking at just product manager or even just product, and then using the filters from there. Sometimes the keywords can actually restrict you more than you think, and there are more people that fit your qualif- your desired qualifications but they just don't have that same title. Or maybe, you know, some startups just have product as the title and everyone in the product org just has product or growth as their title. And you would miss out on them if you wanted product marketing or product manager specifically. Okay, so this is super interesting because you said something around like, if it's too small. So what was a number you were targeting from like an initial TAM perspective? Like, okay, cool, I can start. And just to like be more specific, I remember having a conversation with Maddie Machado about this. And she's like, you know, I would try to get it to like, a, I think her number was like between 500 and 1,000. She's like, anything bigger than that, like there's no way I could get through everyone. So let me like constrain it a little bit more. And if I only had like 50, that was too little. Let me expand it a little bit more. So like, where, where were you targeting for like, okay, cool, this is the right amount in terms of resolution. Now let me start sourcing. That is a really great question. And I don't want to say it depends, right? Because I think she's right. I think you need a number that is enough, that is meaty enough that you have folks to get through for several weeks consistently. And noting that not everyone's going to respond, right? Most recruiters do not have a 50% response rate. So even if you reach out to 500 folks, it doesn't mean that 250 have responded and you're full of conversations. It's, you know, typically closer to somewhere around 20%, 30 to 40 for, you know, really really strong, resonant recruiter, and then less for one that is just not getting that response rate as high. So you want to account for, A, the fact that a lot of people just won't respond, no matter how wonderful your message was. Even if they're open to work, is which has been my experience. I had one the other day, I wrote someone who was open to work, and they're like, hey, I'm not looking. I was like, I'm confused, but I'm sorry. I don't like to re- reach out, you know, someone who's happily employed. I don't want to send them like an email. But I was like, but you had open to work on. So, you know, a little bit of like the lens into what recruiters go through. But as a job seeker, reply, check your email inbox. Reply, <laughs> right? And sometimes I know we're all more in demand sometimes and less other times, and it really depends. But I would say, check your email inbox, but recruiters know to follow up. So within the industry, like I think best practice is something like reaching out three times. So you have your initial reach out, then you have your follow up, then you have a final, hey, I'll stop bothering you. But just if you're interested, I'm still willing to have a conversation, would love to chat. So recruiters don't give up easily. We're very persistent, but you have to take that into account when you're looking at your TAM numbers. So if you have a TAM of 100, and say you you are a stellar recruiter, you have um, a 40% response rate, right, which is very high, right? But let's just say right, you have 40 of those folks end up responding to you. Let's say maybe, you know, a few, five of them, I don't know, they get promoted or maybe another five re- withdraw from your process for some reason. The numbers whittle down very quickly. And in terms of qualified folks that actually get through, like even if you start with, let's say, 20 to 30 great candidates or candidates you think are great, you'll end up disqualifying some in your recruiter phone screen. You'll realize they're not a fit for whatever reason. doesn't have to be about their background. It could be about logistics even. You know, if you have, um, I don't know, a hybrid office model or if there's a visa situation, you never know. And then also um, they might 
fall out of the process in later stages as well. So that's why it's just, I would say going in with a small number under 300 is going to be really tight. And I might say, hey, Dave, let's look at expanding this out just so we don't get through this in a couple of weeks. And then you're disappointed. Hey, where are the rest of the folks? We've restricted it too much. So this is really cool. I feel like there's like a neat tip here for job seekers to almost like do this process in reverse to understand my TAM. And I don't think you need LinkedIn Recruiter to do this. I think I'm gonna have to validate this after you you could tell me, Marjorie, but like if I went to LinkedIn and searched for people, I know for sure you can't see who's open to work. So let's just say you can see who's got the qualifications, who's open to work, you don't know. Oh, I mean, unless they have the green banner on, but that's some subset. I can tell you there's a lot of people who have open to work on that don't have the banner on. And just see like, who's, who's my competition in a way? If you go to the people thing and say, these are the things I want to be found for, you know, I do product marketing. I don't B2B. I've got some enterprise experience. Like who's my competition? What pool am I in? Oh, that's interesting. Because I would I would have thought to go to the jobs first on LinkedIn. But you're saying go to people whose careers you want to emulate and look at the the keywords they have on their profile. I mean, they're technically my competition, right? Like those are the people that are going to show up in the LinkedIn recruiter and that I'm essentially competing against. So like... Let me see how big of a pool am I in? And then, you know, maybe I start to add keywords like, okay, let me expand, like, let me make the net that I get caught in bigger. And because I think that a lot of people don't realize how important those keywords are. As much as like everyone beats the keyword drum, even things that are seemingly obvious, which is where I think people really fail. Is they're like, oh, it's obvious. I worked at HubSpot. So of course I know B2B. Nope. You need to put the B2B in your profile somewhere in an achievement. And if you did B2C, you need, it's that your LinkedIn profile is actually, I think, an area where, let's not call it keyword stuff, but I think it's okay to go overboard with keywords as long as they're contextualized. Like the easy place is the skills section. Just go crazy in the skills section. Again, assuming you have the skills, and then naturally weave it in to the work experience, the about section, and the headline. And I almost want to say, like, if you feel like you've done too many, just do a little bit more. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. No, and it's so true, especially in the About Me section. I always recommend, if you go to my profile, you'll, you'll see this. At the end of the About Me section, I have like a dump of all the skills of what I focus on, specialties. That is a really great place to add any extra skills because it will come up first when a recruiter is scrolling through your profile in LinkedIn Recruiter. And I the view is slightly different in LinkedIn Recruiter. So it is a little more streamlined than what you see on LinkedIn. We don't have as many distractions on the sides. It will even highlight the the keywords that are a match. So it will show you everywhere around the profile, okay, this was a match six times and here are the places it showed up and it will bring the recruiter to those sections. So I think the higher up, the better in within your profile, but absolutely add them, add them in. I think of another thing people miss, like you said, they miss some very obvious ones that could be low-hanging fruit, thinking of when a recruiter is inputting keywords for a search, the basic skills. But also if you are feeling like you're not getting that many matches or recruiters reaching out to you, like or good job matches, I would go to your recommended jobs section and look at the keywords they have in the their qualification section and see, okay, do I have these? Even the ones that seem kind of simple or they might not be like quote unquote hard skills, am I including these? And then see, come back in you know a couple days and see if your recommended jobs have changed. Because what the recommended job section is on LinkedIn, it's matching up all the keywords in your profile against all of the words in the, the job description. And that's what a lot of it is is based on. So that is a great litmus test, I think, for people to do without um, needing to, you know, have any sort of fancy tools. That makes perfect sense. I mean, I was just doing one the other day, I was sourcing for uh, an influencer marketing manager, potentially head of influencer marketing. 
at Teal. And when I did influencer marketing, I just got a lot of people. Like in and in retail, that's huge. And there aren't as many people who have done it in SaaS, software as a service. And so my keyword string was influencer marketing in quotations and all caps, SaaS. And it went down to like 30 people. And the funny part is like there are people that I know are like on my radar that I would I was expecting to be in the list because they work at companies that are SaaS that I admire and they weren't there because SaaS is not inferred from the company and it's not in their profile. So they did not show up in my search results. Yeah, and I would I would recommend taking that SaaS out completely or you could add on SaaS or software as a service, you know, in parentheses or just software. But that I think the SaaS is really restricting because it's not something that we say to our friends. Oh, you know, I work at your local SaaS company, right? It's just a, doesn't, it's not as top of mind. That's a really good point. Right, so there's two parts. It's like restricting for me as a recruiter, but if I'm a candidate listening, that keyword would have made me show up in that search. Exactly. But I, yeah, I will say it's, that's why as a recruiter, I like to start the searches off more broad. And I would have just gone in with influencer marketing. I mean, I'm, I love a Boolean string as much as the next person, right? But I, now I think because the LinkedIn tool, the LinkedIn recruiter tool has evolved so much from what it was once was, um, first was when I started using it, they have incredible filters. And I think the filters a lot of the time are what recruiters use even more so. I mean, we have a lot of safe, search with, safe searches with Boolean strings, but the filters can be really, really useful for picking up folks that we otherwise might have have lost if we restricted the Boolean too much. So like I'll say mine, just to, so I'll, I'll start with location. That's like one of the first ones I do. We only hire in the US, so I'll do it in the United States filter. Then I almost always go to the keywords and I put in hard skills. Or even again, I, I might use the title, but sometimes title's restrictive because it tries to connect it to like a real title. So in like this last one, I just did United States and then I went straight to the keywords. And my first broad one was influencer marketing in quotations. And that was my first search. I think resulted in like tens of thousands of people. But that was like the first two parameters I injected into that search. Like where, where do you go first when you use Recruiter? Oh yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, location is different for every company because now some folks hire remote or they use, um, you know, a service a vendor where they can hire in other countries. So I would say, that is first to understand where where you're looking. I would start with definitely, I mean, keywords, influencer marketing, you want to have that in there no matter what. There are certain filters on LinkedIn I shy away from, like industry or like title. Like you mentioned, those two are based on what people input into their LinkedIn. Sometimes it's when they first sign up for LinkedIn and they input it, I don't know, 10 years ago, and they don't remember that they put in telecom versus like internet. You know, it, it really is one to stay away from. I would say skills is where you want to go next, right? So if there's, if you want B2B, I would put, I would, I definitely would put that in. I would probably ask you some more questions about what's important to you in the search. What do they need to have? Because influencer marketing um, isn't a newer field, right? Relatively so. And so what, what do you need with, besides saying B2B, you could also input software, you could put in business to business as additional keywords. I would start there and then look at the relevancy of the folks that are coming up. And then I typically would go through the first five profiles on that page and say, okay, how relevant are they? How much, how closely do they match up with what you had in mind? And let's go back to the JD, to the job description, to understand what were the top three or four qualifications that we had listed. Typically, they are listed in order of importance. I would say the ones that are weighted higher are going to be your first couple. What can we bring into the LinkedIn search from there? So we're not just blindly looking through tens of thousands of influencer marketing managers. The other thing I do for sure is always check open to work first. 
And then the other one is this newer feature of like shown interest in your company, which I think that means they've either like liked your stuff or followed your company. Because I'm just looking for higher efficacy on response. Those are the, the things I check almost like automatically as soon as I start searching. And I will say naturally, the folks that are following your company will show up higher on the relevancy. So that's those are folks that I would have noticed first anyways, because even before this new feature, they would have been surfaced as, hey, with a little, you know, hand, <laughs> someone's raising their hand, like then potentially like to work there. This could be a signal that they're interested. Um, so I think that that is a really good one to look out for. I mean, to turn that into a tip, hearing you say that is like, if you're job searching and there's companies you're interested in, go follow them. Companies don't post that often. Don't worry. It's not going to like pollute your feed. They really don't. But it's got huge power in terms of the signal and the ranking algorithm in LinkedIn Recruiter. Huge. And this is something I, I actually tell all the folks that I work with, right, that are job searching to not only follow the companies you're interested in, follow adjacent companies and within and even companies, if you might not think you would be initially interested it will just surface up um, jobs that are recommended for you in those industries, right? Or in those sub-industries, it's going to be more likely to lead you towards something that you'd be interested in and qualified for. And not only to follow the companies, I also recommend following the leaders within those companies. So, so now you can follow anyone on LinkedIn. It's not just, you know, the influencers like it used to be. You can go in and follow the head of product marketing at a company or the head of influencer marketing at a company. This is I think a great tip for hiring managers as well that want to get noticed by candidates that are really in demand as just as much as it is for um, recruiters, you know, going the other way as well. Because when you follow someone, you um, automatically get a notification. When someone follows you, Dave, you're going to get a notification. Hey, Marjorie just followed you. And it, that's one of the few individual notifications that you get on LinkedIn that will really get someone noticed. So th I think that's a great trick for candidates and for hiring managers. Moving on. So now you've sourced it. You've got your talent pool. You've got people that you want to reach out to. You reach out to them. Let's say they said yes. You know, the other thing we wanted to talk a little about is interviewing and sort of preparing for that interview. And I understand there's a few different mindsets. You could say sort of if you're responding to outbound, you can kind of like begrudgingly doing it. I'm kind of of the mindset, like if you're going to do it, do it well. Like, don't waste your time and the count. You, you, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the person. If you're going to take the meeting, like go for a good meeting. What as a recruiter, are you looking for in that initial, what are your spidey senses sort of tuned for in, in that meeting? I love these types of meetings, right? These calls are with candidates that are passive. We're trying to entice them to be interested in the company, but we do want to see some sort of interest or learn more about what intrigued them to get on the phone. So the first thing I always ask is, you know, we have our niceties and rapport building, but then also what motivated you to get on the phone with me today? And I think that is one of the most important questions we can ask as a recruiter, just to set up the conversation for like, what, what is the candidate's expectation, right? Do they even think they're a candidate at this point? Have they been following the company really closely for many years? So I would say be prepared to answer that question first and foremost, just to give the recruiter a sense of your interest level and your openness. Are you actively interviewing and this came at the perfect time? Or are you really happy in your role, but this is something that you would potentially be interested in learning more about? So just frame it a little bit for us. That is the first thing that I look for. The second thing that I look for is ability to communicate your value within your current organization and what you've done in the past. If you're not currently with an organization, that's fine, right? Just wanting to understand your career story and your career milestones. So I think having those mapped out before you hop on the phone with any recruiter, even if you think it's, you know, a casual chat, 
you are being evaluated in some way, shape or form. So I would say come prepared with your career milestones. It doesn't have to be a five minute answer to tell me about yourself, but at least some points that you know you want to hit on. So if nothing else, this recruiter walks away knowing these key points about me, these my years of experience and what I want to do next. Yeah, I think those are really good points because I've and some of the outbound I do, then I, I hop on the meeting with someone. It's a tricky thing because it's kind of like a dance of like, I talk a lot about who's in the buying seat and who's in the selling seat uh, in terms of like posture and motion. And that's a funny one because I'm kind of, as the recruiter, I am selling, right? Because this person didn't apply. They didn't like, but I also still need to vet. Like there's, you just don't know. There's only so much that's in the LinkedIn and same, like, hey, you reached out to me. So obviously you must think I'm good, but I also do need to sell you because that's part of why we're on the call is like, you need to understand if you're going to move me forward and ask a bunch of people to invest a bunch of time on whether you should hire me or not. I just tell people, if you default to selling, you kind of can't go wrong. Because what I see a lot of people do is almost like try to decide before a decision needs to be made. They're like, I don't even know if I'm going to take the call. I don't even know if I would want this job. It's like, you haven't even like moved in the process yet. You've already like eliminated yourself or like screened them out. And so like, I always tell people, unless your time is phenomenally constrained, which it it fair. Some people have it. I got two kids and you know, like I got to be very judicious with my time. But also if you're going to take the call, like show up. Absolutely. And I will say, def- I always, of course, bias recruiter here, I always say default to taking the call. Just because you never know, even if that role is not perfect for you, that recruiter might move to another company and then be hiring for your dream role. Or that recruiter might switch departments and move to a, depart- a department that's even more interesting to you or work with a hiring manager that is your dream manager. So you just never know the connections that chatting with the recruiter will bring, building rapport with them will, will bring. But it is such a dance. You're right. And I kind of I liken it to, you know, you give a little information as a recruiter. They give a little information. You give a little. They give a little. So you you tell them a bit about this role you're hiring for. What's new about it? Why the role's open? What's exciting about it? And then typically that warms them up a bit to tell them some more information. So you can then start to vet and get permission, essentially, to ask questions right about their background, their qualifications. But I would say, um, you know, folks that come onto the call and they're like, uh, well, you reached out to me, you know, like. That it typically doesn't go that well. So I would say just stay open, see what the recruiter has to say, and come prepared with some main points about yourself because it is an interview. It's a casual interview, but it it still is an interview. It's in, I've seen those where people just like take it and they're there in this like very uninterested way. And it's like, I'm just not sure what you're expecting. Like, why'd you take this? Right, exactly. You, know, like, you expect me to like swoon over you and tell you how amazing you are. It's like, that's not... Like this is a, you know, this is not how you build a relationship in in general. So like if that's either turn off your open to work or just don't. And if you got reached out to and you did have open to work off, I also think reply because I think relationships, relationships belong to you. And what I, a thing I do see is that folks take kind of a short sighted view to some of these exchanges, you know, either one, they ghost, which like, if you're going to do something as a candidate, do that. What definitely don't do is send like a nasty response. Like, why are you emailing me? I don't have open to work on. Like, I get it. It's annoying. We got a lot of noise in our life. But people don't forget. And people move to different companies and people keep hiring. And I think we're really good as a species at like remembering negative interactions. Unfortunately, not as good positive ones. So just always show up as your best self. 
It's so true. And you're right. And the recruiting world is very small, first of all. So a lot of recruiters know each other. But also, I would say we tend to not forget negative interactions, but the ATS never forgets. And what I think a lot of people don't know is that your responses are saved in that company's applicant tracking system. And they can pull it up again, right? So if another recruiter goes to, a lot of the times we'll have a a system in LinkedIn Recruiter where you take the response and you copy it and save it into a note so that the next recruiter, say the search gets picked up by another recruiter, you go out sick or something happens, they know what the interaction has been, right? It's just for kind of continuity of business and stays within the company's records. And so I think a lot of candidates forget, like, look, if you, you know, if you respond with something that's less than favorable, kind of nasty, we we know, and it could hurt your chances in the future to work at the company. So let's talk about that. And I think we'll, we'll end on this topic is the ATS and not like the woo-woo AI stuff, but th- like using your ATS to find these silver medalists that will become gold medalists. How do you now search within your ATS for past applicants? Also, I think it'd be helpful to give people a little context on why that happens because they might say, well, you already passed on me. Why would you bring me back? You know, and there's lots of really good reasons but would love to hear directly from you, like why you go to source from your own past applicants you've already essentially passed on. And then what's that process? How do you do it? Well, first to starting with why we source based on past past applicants and even folks that we've rejected, it's because we've done a lot of really thoughtful, you know, talent mapping work already. We've done great sourcing work. I've partnered with different sources in the past. I've sourced myself. I've sourced together with the hiring managers. Sometimes we do like source-a-thons with the team. So we put a lot of time, effort, and energy into finding candidates, and also to collecting great applicants. I love applicants. I love referrals. I love internal candidates. There's people that come through so many different channels that I don't necessarily think one is better than the other, right? I think they're all great potential candidates. But a lot of, I mean, there are only so many people we can interview at any given time. And it could be a question of timing, right? Like we've just gotten things going and then a great few candidates come in at the end, but we've already extended an offer to someone else, right? We're going to honor those offers and move ahead with those folks that have gone through the entire process and that the team is excited about. Another reason could be potentially they, you know, were missing a key skill or we just wanted to see a bit more experience in a certain area. And so we passed on them. But then a year later, they have that experience in that area, right? Or they've moved into another role that has shown them a different perspective. And we never would have known that would have happened if it were a year ago. It just wasn't the right time. And I've seen many people apply, you know, two, three times. And then on the third time, they get the role at LinkedIn or wherever it is. So it's not about, you know, applying 50 times. I would recommend against that, definitely. But keep in touch with your recruiters. And a lot of recruiters, um, if they're, say, they're new to the organization, they don't know where to start, we'll say, do a historical search, right? Do a check on to who we've looked at in the past, who has reached final stages in the past, and what qualifications, characteristics did they have that put them into those later stages? And are any of them still available? Or can we use any of them as a model for future sourcing on profiles that are similar. So I would say it's the ATS is a wealth of candidates that a lot of people, a lot of the time they overlook, but um, recruiting teams that are resourceful, they're going to be looking into them and seeing if they can re-engage them because they've already had, you know, some warm contact, warm touches with the company. And so this is, I think, where a lot of the ATS advice sort of stems from. So how do you search the ATS, like what data is it using to power your search results? And like, what, what's the kind of query you're doing in the ATS to service people? Yeah, so it's similar to LinkedIn, how in LinkedIn Recruiter, we have folders where we categorize folks based on type of role, however you want to categorize them. 
in um, the ATS. I mean, there's many different ATSs out there and they're all slightly different. But um, if they have, you know, a sourcing function, you can categorize for some, you can use similar folders to organize folks and create almost like campaigns of folks you want to reach out to. And you can create nurture campaigns and build out an entire nurture strategy for how to re-engage these folks. I will say not all ATSs are built this way and have this. So it really depends on on what you're using. But from there, it's a lot of keyword search, just like in LinkedIn Recruiter. Again, some of the ATSs have all the filters. Some don't. Some are a little more basic to use. So it's I would say the complexity of the search depends on that. What's it using when you're searching? Maybe I'm trying to like tease out a question that I kind of know yeah, the answer to. Sure. But how much of the resume is used in the keyword search? Yeah, so the entire resume. So essentially what is saved, say you applied to a role at, you know, this random company um, and they... Let's say Greenhouse. Let's say Greenhouse, right? Let's say you... Know, you, you they're, 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 they're yeah, exactly. company, but you recruited and you helped with them and you did the consulting side. Yeah, is exactly. So they would have your resume from when you applied and whatever information you sent them in, say, depends if you've sent them a cover letter, your LinkedIn profile, that will be attached to your profile as well. I prefer if people have submitted a, an application, including their LinkedIn profile in addition to it, because that is a living, breathing you know, record of your experience. If there's a resume, it's going to be static. It's going to be a year old or two years old, three years old, and it will likely be out of date and will have to go to your LinkedIn profile anyways, but it will pick up on the keywords. Just to clarify that, the ATSs don't go out and check your LinkedIn for keywords, I don't think. No, no, no. It's not like they're pulling in keywords from your LinkedIn and then in including that. Well, it, I will say if you've applied through LinkedIn, if say like you see like an easy apply button, right? And or you've applied using your LinkedIn profile. Essentially what that what that company is doing is they're taking a snapshot of your LinkedIn and they put that almost as if it's your resume into the ATS. So in that case, yes, right? Because they're really using all the keywords. But the day you applied, it's not like a live link. It's a snapshot from the day you applied. So whatever keywords were there that day, are now the keywords that are in the ATS. And same with you, what, it's the same point you're making with the resume. The keywords that were in your resume that day are the keywords that are now searchable within the ATS. Definitely. So there, it's going to be a bit stale. Got it. So, I mean, the sort of the tip there is the keywords on the resume matter. Again, it's not some woo-woo magic AI bot. It's a, a recruiter going in to look at the past candidates. These are people that showed interest. And like, hey, let me bring up everyone that, knows impact, which is an affiliate marketing software, right? Then anyone who had that, let me, because now we opened up a new role. It's in the affiliate marketing department. We passed on them before, but we need to know people that know impact or something. And so that's where you go. And there's a way for recruiters to also tag candidates in the ATS with certain skills. So say I want to tag you with, I don't know, influencer marketing, that's a tag I can create. And then when future recruiters look that up, it will be surfaced. But again, that kind of involves a, that you create a bit of a tagging convention within your company. I've seen like very complex tagging conventions and ones where, um, you know, you might maybe a recruiter misspelled something or the tag is slightly off and they're harder to surface. So I will say just the keyword searches makes the most sense for that. But also um, I've seen recruiters go like pull reports from historical recs. So recs that are already closed and they'll go back and see um, who got the farthest and then search based on on that. And it just shortens your your list a bit and gives you a place to start. I love lingo on this show because I love learning it. 
Rex is requisitions. Yes. Sorry about that. Requisitions. Exactly. So <laughs> no, no, it's, not, it's okay. I love it. I love when lingo surfaces and we can define it for people because it just happens in common language. And it's part of like the cool thing about having experts on this show is that we sort of unpack the expertise for everyone else to get a sense of how it works. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. A rec is just a job for anyone out there who doesn't know what it is, right? So just any role within the ATS, open or closed. The other one was disposition. I was like, wow, that's like such formal. But it's like in recruiting, it's like, yeah, we have to di- disposition all the all the applications. And so that just means they've like closed them out, whether like applied or or they, but basically they need to close them out. Yes. So going through and, you know, say we've closed a role, we need to re- disposition the rest of the folks. So we'll go go ahead and send them an auto-reject if we're, we're not able to interview them or they're not a match. So you're right. That's very lingo-y of us. Well, Awesome. Marjorie, this was super insightful. I mean, we covered a bunch of topics we haven't talked about. We have one super deep on keywords in like a really, I think, helpful way. How can folks follow along? How can folks get in touch with you and learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, sure. So I'm Marjorie Calamaris on LinkedIn. And you can find, honestly, a lot about me on there. I have a link to um, book a call with me if you're interested in working with me. But uh, I just I'm always open for a chat to um, if you're a recruiter and, you know, if you're a candidate, I love all things hiring. So that's the best way to reach me. But thank you for having me. This has been great. We will link to all that in the show notes. This was super fun. I, did, I learned a ton, which is always sort of my my sort of measuring stick for these. Um, there's a lot I don't know about recruiting, which is part of my selfish reason for doing this. So I really learned a lot. Thank you so much for spending the time with me. And uh, yeah, if you want to learn anything from Marjorie, make sure to hit her up. Her contact info will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for being with us, Marjorie. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We wanna give people that inside view to what it looks like like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you.